0: Hi, I'm Gus Warland and this is not an overnight success brought to you by Shore & Partners Financial Services. This is a podcast where we sit down with some very successful people from the world of business, entertainment and sport and chat about their life's journey and what got them to the position they're in today. In today's episode, we are chatting with Lisa Wilkinson. Lisa is one of Australia's most respected journalists and media personalities. In our chat, we talk about her growing up in Sydney, being the middle child and good girl, as she says, and the bullying she experienced at school. We talk about her career starting early and becoming the editor of a major national magazine at just 21 years of age, and how that led to her career into television. Lisa is graceful, she's dignified, and it seems that just about anything she touches turns to gold. She's incredibly talented and hardworking, and she learned to trust her instincts and seize the opportunities that came her way, even if she didn't quite feel like she was ready for them. We speak about her time with the Today Show and answer a few questions surrounding her departure from the show that the headlines didn't quite get correct. As for all these podcasts, Shaw and Partners Financial Services have generously donated $10,000 to the charity of choice of each of our guests. We discuss who gets that money in this chat. The executive producer of this podcast is Keisha Pettit with production assistance from Kelly Stubbs and Brittany Hughes. Let's get into our chat and I hope you enjoy it with Lisa Wilkinson. Lisa Wilkinson, welcome to the podcast. How are you?
1: I'm great, Gus. I've had a week off and so I feel like I could take on the world right now.
0: And you just had COVID as well, so you feel like you've got the antibodies in I've got the antibodies.
1: I feel like I should have one of those superwoman suits on. (laughs) Nothing can touch me. There's
0: (laughs) lots of people that would say that about you that haven't met you as well. Because I said today that I was going to have you on the podcast and people are like, I'd love to meet her. You know, you are someone that a lot of people look up to and feel like they know you because they've watched you for so long. Do you feel that yourself?
1: It's always really lovely when people come up to me in the street or, you know, I'm in a cafe or something and they come over and say hello. And other people often wonder if I have a problem with that. Yeah. And I figure the day that I decide that someone coming up and saying how much they Love you or love your work or you know, you did something that really touched them. If I get tired of that, can you tap me on the shoulder, Gus, <laughs> yeah. and say, Lisa, you don't deserve yeah. this spot anymore. Move over, somebody else can be here. Because it is it's a wonderful thing to be a journalist and be able to do work that people get something from. That yeah. that's an incredible privilege and it's it hasn't been lost on me for the forty years that I've been a journalist.
0: No, I imagine that's the case. But I, I'm assuming that that is who you are as a person though. Like you, people look at you as someone that you're a safe pair of hands. Like if Lisa says it, that's what's happening. Do you feel that responsibility?
1: I certainly feel the responsibility of the position of trust that you're in as a journalist mm. and I've never taken that for granted. But how do I sort of see myself? I see myself as a kid from the western suburbs of Sydney that lucked out big time. Yeah. <laughs> like every day, that's my starting point. When my first foot goes on the floor, this is who you are.
0: Yeah, I like that. Let's go back to the start. What were you like as a kid and what was your family makeup like?
1: Um, well, I grew up in Campbelltown in, in the western suburbs. I have an older brother and a younger brother. Mum and dad, very hard-working dad and, you know, a homemaker mum. Mm-hmm. And... As a kid I I just loved the world. We had a boxer dog. I've had boxer dogs for the rest of my life. We lived in a very humble little weatherboard house that my father designed. And we had a big backyard, and every time it rained, a creek formed at the back. And we had big trees that we used to climb, and we collected frogs and <laughs> silkworms, and uh, you know, played on our bikes in the street. And I remember the day that the street lights went on for the very first time, and it was a really beautiful spot to grow up, and you know, surrounded by. A very tight-knit community and I feel incredibly blessed because I know not everyone gets that as a kid. And, you know, my father in particular was a very community-minded man and he was president of the local rugby union club and he was president of the Lions Club. So he was all about charity and giving back always. That is still the star that I steer by is, you know, what would Dad think of that? And Dad passed away back in 1990 And at the time, he was running Sydney Rugby Union. And one of the footballers that he really admired, who was also a journalist, was a guy by the name of Peter (laughs) Fitzsimons. And bizarrely enough, in the weeks before Dad passed away, Dad used to get me to read out That guy, Peter Fitzsimons Columns.
0: Oh, Mm. all those big posh words that he uses. Yep, Yeah. I need someone to read that (laughs) out to me to explain half the stuff that Pete writes about. There's plenty
1: in there that's not very posh at all, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. But, um, yeah, so, you know, I, I came from very much a rugby family. Yeah. And Dad knew Pete, and Pete knew Dad as an administrator, but we were never together at that point. In fact, my two brothers played for the rugby union club that my dad was president of, All of my girlfriends dated all the guys in the team. My mother did the sausage sizzle every Saturday. And so I made a very conscious decision. I'm never dating a footballer. The dog and I are staying home on Saturday afternoons. Like I'm not – I want my world to be bigger than football. Yeah, yeah. And blow me down if 18 months after Dad passed away – I started dating this guy called Peter Fitzsimons and nine months after that I was walking down the aisle, <laughs> sadly not on my father's arm but my older brother's arm, Yeah. and the best man was Nick Farr-Jones, who just months before had held the Rugby World Cup aloft,
0: yep. Nineteen ninety-one.
1: which was my dad's great <laughs> ambition that the Wallabies could do that, yep. and I looked to the heavens and I said out loud, Dad, you got me. <laughs> so, That's so awesome. Yeah. He was there on the day. I know he was.
0: No doubt about that. Yep. Were you close as a family? Were you close to your brothers? Were you, did you have a good relationship with them? No, and dad?
1: No, I was the annoying sister. And I was the classic middle child. Like, I was the good girl. Never wanted to disappoint anyone. Teachers, parents, you know, I was an A grade student right through primary school. Did ballet, you know, was was really good at ballet. In fact, I wanted to be a ballerina But I gave it up in high school because I sort of went through a a bit of a school of hard knocks in high school because there was some pretty bad bullying. And I realised that doing ballet was very uncool. And when you get bullied, you really, you don't want to be good at anything. You don't want to stand out at anything. It's actually much more comfortable in the shadows and disappearing between the cracks. And so I thought, if I stop ballet, I won't shine anymore. (laughs) But I don't regret it because it led me in another direction completely. Mm. But, gee, I was a good ballerina. (laughs) God, I was good. I loved it. That feeling of just soaring through the air and just owning a stage and feeling that music and just the beauty of ballet was Mm. just – I was imbued with all of that. But, you see
0: it, and see it in your face when yeah, you're talking about it. You yeah, just light up.
1: Yeah. just It's like anyone. You know, when you're finding your feet and your place in the world, if you find that you're good at something and you have people who believe in you and encourage you and support you, I mean, it's just such a great feeling. Of course. Mm.
0: Those bullies now. You know, have you ever – I got bullied at school too for my weight mainly, but I went back to the five-year – you know, because I went to the same school as Pete – you know, into the 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, I was coming up to the 35 year reunion. Yep. Those blokes now, I feel f- sorry for them, you know, and some of them are still bullies, but in a different way, just, mm. just older bullies with mm. less hair and a bigger tummy. I'm disappointed in myself sometimes that I didn't stick up them more. I, I did basically just go, you know what, I don't want any friction here, so I'll back away. Have you come across them?
1: Well, I write in my book about a very unexpected episode that happened at my 40th school reunion. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yes, I did come across the bullies and I'm not going to be able to do the story justice. In fact, I was going to leave that story out of the book because I had a bit of a winning moment and I (laughs) felt in many ways that it was a little unfair because... There is something quite particular about doing 13 years of public education where there's no airs and graces, you don't presume any kind of privilege at all because you don't know anyone and yeah. you, you know that the only way you're going to get anywhere in the world is by working hard because there's no old school tie, there's yep. no connections, there's there's nothing but hard work between you and possibly doing well. Yeah. And so I recognize that I've done well as an adult, uh, and my little 15 year old self would not have believed the life that I've been lucky enough to lead. But when you go to school reunions, there is that feeling of, "Oh, so what are you doing now?" and And I'm very aware that, you know, most of the people I went to school with have sort of followed my career and and I always, I'm always fascinated by their lives. Mm. I want to know what they've done. I want to know their passions and and that's why I got into journalism. I'm interested in people's stories. So, yes, I did meet up with those bullies and well, I discovered that they were still bullies and Let's just say I had a moment that my little 15-year-old self would have been very, very proud of. It's high five on that one. (laughs) (laughs) I did that for every kid who's ever been bullied, but it was very, very spontaneous. But it was just one of those moments that was bowled up to me out of the blue and I thought, I'm going to have to reach in and find my voice right now. (laughs) And I did.
0: That is so good. Yeah. And then you eventually come out of school and quite early in your life do get success. You know, for, for people in there, I've got a 22-year-old at home and he's not running a massive big uh, magazine and that type of stuff. So how did, you, how did you get that so quickly and what was the opportunity that, that arose for you to take on Dolly?
1: Well, like most young women of my era growing up in the 70s and 80s, I read Dolly magazine. That was the go-to teen Bible for every girl in Australia and every guy who had a sister who read Dolly. So so Dolly was sort of looking after the sex education, the emotional well-being, the fashion advice, the pop stars, the everything of a typical Aussie childhood. The Bible. It really was. And it came out once a month and every Tuesday – I would be the first in line at the Chamberlain Street Shops to buy my copy of Dolly on the way to school. (laughs) And, you know, I would go into Miss Coleman's geography class and I would always have it confiscated. And if I'd known (laughs) then what I know now, I could have just said, excuse me, Miss Coleman, do you mind? I'm studying for my career here. (laughs) Because by the time I decided that I wanted to be a journalist, which sort of came about in a whole lot of different ways. Like I always used to love shows like Four Corners and This Day Tonight and Mike Willis's A Current Affair and I was just always fascinated by the world around me and news and and I'm a great believer if you're doing all of the talking, you're not doing any of the listening. And the only reason I'm doing that now is because you've asked me to do it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but but I love hearing how people live their lives. And I think everybody's got a book in them. Everyone's got amazing stories if you just stop down and listen. And combined with this love of Dolly, I decided I wanted to be a journalist, but I also wanted to travel because I thought I've led this really small life Mm. in the suburbs. I haven't really lived my life yet. And if I want to be a journalist, I want to go out there and I want to Fall in love with the wrong boy in a cafe in Morocco and I want to (laughs) fall asleep in a hammock in the Greek islands and I want to, you know, scramble to pay the rent in some squat in London while I'm trying to get together enough money to get back home again. And just know what the roller coaster of life when you're just out there on your own feels like, because then I'll have something to offer once I come back and try and get a cadetship. So I had a bunch of friends I was going to travel with. So I thought, okay, I'll go to business college after I do year 12. I'll get shorthand and typing, which is what you needed back in those days. And then I'll get a job for a year, save really hard. We'll all head overseas and then I'll come back and I'll <laughs> be worthy of a possible cadetship. But I did the shorthand and typing and the very first day I looked in the paper for a job, you know, in the women and girls employment section of the Sydney Morning Herald.
0: There was a women's in- it was women and girls it section. It was, and nah.
1: isn't it fantastic that we look at that and think, "What? Yeah, yeah, yeah." That's an indication we'll of how far way, we've yeah. come. Yeah. And I stopped at this tiny three line ad under the letter D that said, "Dolly magazine is looking for a secretary, stroke editorial assistant, stroke girl Friday, who is prepared to do absolutely anything." Phone Kathy on six double nine three six double two. You remember. I've still got the ad. <laughs> so I phoned Cathy on six double nine three six double two, and somehow out of the dozens and dozens and dozens of girls that would have applied for that job, I got it. And from the very first moment I walked in there, I had found my passion. There was just nothing else I wanted to do. And it was a really small staff, but the editor was was much older than the magazine's readership. She was 55. And it's amazing how so not old that woman sounds to me these days. Yeah. But she was very out of touch with the readership. I had seven years of back issues of Dolly still sitting under my bed that I still flicked through. Even though I was 19, there was just, it had taken a place in my heart that, you know, I'd grown up with every single yeah. one of those issues. I couldn't throw them out. I'd be throwing out my, my adolescence. Yeah. And so I was I was just so connected to that audience and it just came to me really easily. I just knew what they needed to do because I felt the magazine was out of touch and I kept making suggestions in editorial meetings and I really knew that the 55-year-old editor was out of touch when I said to her, look, we just have to realise that the Bay City Rollers are no longer cool and we should do a giant tear-out poster of meatloaf. And she looked at me with horror and she said, Lisa... These are not the Woman's Weekly cookery pages, and I wow. thought you don't know that Meatloaf is a singer, and has the biggest album in the country called is "Bat it, Out of Hell." He's a bit of a think big deal. I'm talking about Meatloaf recipes. As it Margaret turned, Fulton put yep, that in, yeah, she was on one of the floors. She was working in the building, like okay. so starry eyed every Legend. time I saw her. Yeah, as it turned out. Three months later, she went to be the editor of Woman's Day where, ironically enough, meatloaf recipes really were a big seller. So she went to where she needed to be. And just as I was offered a cadetship, the deputy editor became editor and she said to me, I really need you. And I became deputy editor. And 12 months after that, just when I really should have been going overseas with my girlfriends, she decided that she was now going overseas on an extended holiday And that I was the editor. And it was – I didn't even have a moment, Gus, to think about it because I couldn't. Because I just knew all over this building with Woman's Day, Cosmo, Electronics Australia, uh, People Magazine, like they were all in this building. It was part of Fairfax. I just knew all over the building there would have been fully trained up journalists thinking who the hell does this trumped up little typist think she is? the truth is, that's exactly what I was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, if I listen to any of those naysayers, I'll believe what they've got to say. Mm. So I can't. So there was no congratulations. I just had to get down to work. Actually, I lie. There was one call from a crusty old Fairfax board member who rang to wish me a hell of a lot more luck with the teenage population of Australia than he was currently having with his (laughs) 15-year-old daughter.
0: (laughs) And we all know what that means.
1: Yeah. So I thought, okay, well, I'll run with that as my only congratulations. And I just put my head down and thought, I'm going to get one shot at this. Because I was working with people who had been there two years before when I'd knocked on the door just hoping to be good enough to make them all a cup of coffee. Yeah. And I was now their boss. So I got into this position of responsibility so quickly and seniority that nobody had actually thought about teaching me any of the rules. So I wrote a few of my own (laughs) and probably broke plenty. But I don't know which rules I broke, but within four years, we tripled the circulation because we were just on fire. Because one of the privileges about being a boss that no one ever tells you is that over time, You get to choose every single person you spend your intense working hours Mm. with every day. Mm. That's another privilege that I just kind of went, who's been keeping this a secret? Yeah, Like all of these people inspire me. I learn from them every day. Mm. And as a team, we get to create magic. And every month we can wipe the chalkboard clean and start all over again. Very cool. Yeah.
0: Was there a moment in all of that happening, and you saying it with a big smile on your face and you're lighting up, all very successful stuff? Was there a moment in there where you went, "I actually wish this had come a little later, and I'd got a chance to go overseas with my girlfriends"? Like, was there any moment there where of any sort of regret? Because most of us Aussies were so far away from the world. We do shoot off between 18 and 22, and, and it's sort of like that gap year has become a gap few years now, hasn't it? Yeah. Any regrets there?
1: I'm just not someone that's ever lived with regrets. I think because I've been so fortunate with the opportunities that have come along my way, I think if I have a talent, it's for recognising opportunities when they come along and just running with them, mm. not knowing you know, where it's going to end up, but just thinking – this is only going to happen once. This is my shot. Yeah. And every time I've been offered a job, I've always felt I'm not ready for this. I don't think I can do this. But there's just something about someone presenting you a challenge, Gus, and I'm sure you're like this, where you think, I don't think I can do it. But that guy over there thinks that I can. Yeah. And I just don't want to disappoint him. Yeah. Because back in those days, every decision about, you know, challenges and opportunities that came my way. It was all men that were offering them to me. And when you have people believing in you, that is a challenge in itself. It's Mm. just like, I don't want to disappoint you. See, middle child syndrome. Here we go.
0: Going back to what you said at the start, you know, A grade student doing, doing ticking all the boxes. Yeah. So that life, all of a sudden, you're up and about and things are going well for you. What are your sort of thoughts moving forward? Do you always think you're going to stay in the magazine game? Do you start thinking about telly? Do you start thinking about other stuff? Or will you just sort of, you know, head down, bum up?
1: The funny thing about tripling the circulation of a magazine in four years when you're working for Fairfax Media, there was this other magazine company on the other side of town uh, run by Kerry Packer. Yeah. And he had the Woman's Weekly and Cleo and the Bulletin – they were the Vegas Strip <laughs> of magazines. Like Fairfax was always considered Granny Fairfax, whereas Bright Shiny Channel Nine ACP that was the gold standard in media in in this city. And when you triple the circulation, people like Kerry Packer tend to
0: want to know something <laughs> yeah.
1: about you. Yeah. And I was invited to a lunch. I had no intention of working for Kerry Packer.
0: Why didn't you have an, an intention to work for him? Who
1: would want the to reputation? work with a guy that's got a reputation like that? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it was a But fierce... you hadn't met him yet, right? I hadn't. And the only reason I said uh, yes, because I got a call actually from his number two guy, Trevor Kennedy, who very sadly only recently passed away. And Trevor and I had a great chat on the phone and he said to me, I'm interested, Kerry's interested in you coming and running Clio." And I said to him, I don't want to run Cleo. I'm very happy at Dolly. Like, you know, we're, we're off and running. We are yeah. racing. <laughs> and why would I walk away from all of this? Like, I, I want to enjoy this for a while. And he said, yeah, but, you know, Cleo is a landmark magazine in Australian publishing. And, you know, it's time to move on from the teenage stuff. And, and you know, I want you to come to lunch with Kerry. And, and what would you do with Cleo? And part of my strategy that was really successful for Dolly was taking that same passion that I had for Dolly for all of those years, which takes a long time to go away mm. when something has been so significant in your life as a teenager. I thought if I can get those, all of those new readers to just hang around Dolly another six or 12 months more than they otherwise would because they're enjoying the content so much, I can delay their transition to Cleo. And so Cleo's numbers were falling because I was keeping them at Dolly for longer than was the natural transition time. And, you know, so I knew I'm going to have to undo all the cleverness that I've just applied to the market. <laughs> but, you know, when I thought about Cleo, I thought that would be an amazing challenge. And there's, I said to Trevor, gee, there's a lot in there I'd fix up very quickly. And I, you know, running off at the mouth, started telling him. And so this he not, said- This is just an initial chat. Yeah. And you're giving him solutions. So, I know. I know. <laughs> idiot, right? But I also thought, I don't, I'm not going to take this job, but I'm going to show you how smart I
0: am. <laughs> I couldn't okay. resist. Your confidence was up as well. It was. Yeah. Well,
1: you know, things were going well. Yeah. And so he said, look, just come and meet Kerry. That's all I'm asking. Surely you want to meet him. And I thought about it and I thought, could I really hold my head high in decades to come? And say to my grandchildren, which I don't have yet, but, you know, one day. They're coming. um, You know, how could I say to them, your grandmother never went and met Kerry Packer when she had the opportunity. And I just thought, I'm just going to go and meet him. And I'm going to take mental notes so that every dinner party I ever go to from here, (laughs) I can say, well, he ate this and then he talked about that and then he said this about this person and this was the gossip because I thought I'll be everybody's favourite dinner party guest.
0: Absolutely.
1: So anyway, Trevor gave me an address down at Darling Harbour at a time when Darling Harbour was still a bit of a swamp. And Trevor gave me this address and when I arrived at the address – I didn't see a restaurant, that like I was presuming, there was just an, a, a bit of sort of concrete asphalt in, on a big block with cyclone fencing around it and the whirring blades of the Channel 9 news helicopter sitting in the middle of this big vacant lot, ready and waiting, I discovered, to whisk me up to Mr Packer's summer residence at hey, Palm Beach. Uh, yeah. And I'd never been in a helicopter before at this point in my life. I don't know what this is, but I'm going with it. And I just got in the chopper and decided to enjoy the view with, in fact, the very same pilot who went on to give Mr. Packer one of his very own kidneys. So I'm so glad at that point in my life, I didn't know that was part of his job description in the employment of Kerry Packer. Anyway, we landed down at Palm Beach, and I, I write in the book about an incredibly embarrassing episode that happened when the helicopter landed, and I'll leave it that for anyone who reads the book. But let's just say it involved me and a whole lot of seagull poo, yeah. uh, and I was that was the state I was in when I met Kerry Packer for the very first time. Yes. And I also looked like I had wet myself. And the only thing that gave me confidence that day was that morning my very best friend from school had rung and she was one of the only people that knew I was going to this lunch with Kerry Packer apart from mum and dad. And she said to me, are you okay? And I said, are you kidding? I've been throwing up all morning. I am terrified. And she said to him, don't be ridiculous. You've already got a job.
0: Mm.
1: Let him try and impress you. And if that thinking fails you, just do what I do. Just think of him naked. Yeah. (laughs) And let's just say, again, I write about this in the book, a moment happened when I met Kerry Packer that almost became a moment where I didn't even have to think of him naked. And I'll leave it there.
0: Yeah, it's great. (laughs) You'll enjoy that story. So you're happy with Dolly? Everything's going well? Selling more than ever before? Excited? Mm -hmm. Built your own team? Everything's Mm -hmm. going well? Yep. You then go up on the chopper, you see Kerry. He obviously does his magic. So what happens then?
1: I've never met charisma like I experienced sitting on that huge terrace overlooking Palm Beach in that beautiful home Mm. that the Packer family has up at Palm Beach. And I just got completely mesmerised by the charisma of this man. And I think he also knew that he was talking to a kid from Campbelltown who... When it came to negotiating anything that, you know, required the confidence to say what I was worth, I was a joke. (laughs) And he actually felt really sorry for me. (laughs) And at one point when I realised halfway through, oh, my God, I came here not to accept a job and he's now talking me into it, can I actually say to him at this point, you know what, I actually don't want your job. I'm just here to check you out. Mm. And can I get a lift back in that chopper? Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I figure that chopper was gone for dust if I was not going to accept this job. And, you know, after long negotiations, I didn't actually say yes on that day. I said, I've really got to think about this. He knew it though, didn't he? Yeah, well, I didn't know the way the media worked in those days. Right. And I said to him... Can I get back to you on Monday? I just – I need to talk to my dad and it's a huge shift for me because that job is all I've ever known.
0: Yeah, and all you ever really wanted too. Yep,
1: yep. And I've been there for, you know, close on seven years Mm well, blow me down, I was meant to have lunch with Dad on that Monday because he was going to be my wise counsel. Like, I I would talk it through with him. And Dad called me on the Monday morning and he said, Darling, have you seen the paper? <laughs> yeah. And I said, um, no, why? And he said, well, it's in the paper that uh, you're about to become the new editor of Clio. And I just thought, you bastards, yeah. <laughs> you just know that you're dealing with a very naive young girl who doesn't know the way this whole thing works. You've forced my hand because I now have to go to work today and face all of my staff. Yeah. But as that it happened, ha- well, five of my staff came with me. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I raided
0: the joint. <laughs> so you got the job of you, the, the job that's in your DNA. You took it to the next level, and yeah. then you took all the goodies with you.
1: Yeah, and I stayed at Clio for ten years, and Kerry was the most incredible boss. He was so like he said to me at one point because I said I've. I've managed to live a really autonomous life at Fairfax because none of those guys that, that ran Fairfax had any clue what I was doing at Dolly that was working. Right, And it was just like, don't anybody interfere, just let her keep going because mm. whatever she's doing is- It's working. Making a lot of money for us. <laughs> yeah. So I led a very autonomous life and I said to him, I just don't think you're that kind of boss. I think you're going to be breathing down my neck The whole time. But he said to me, why the fuck would I breathe down your neck? I'm going to pay you a shitload of money so you do the job. (laughs) Okay. So I always knew that if I didn't deliver, I would be out of my ear quicker than I realised that I'd been picked up and thrown on the street. Okay. But – it's amazing how that keeps you focused, Gus.
0: Yeah, <laughs> but
1: but, but I, that's the
0: first time you've had that type of leadership, though. You pretty yeah. much had run your own show there yeah. for so long,
1: and it's good. You know, I I have always wanted to live a life where I get those challenges where I just think, can I do this? I don't think I can do this. And and in the early stages of Cleo, the first thing I did was drop the centerfold, which had been going for thirteen years. That's what it was. Everyone knew it as the magazine with the centrefold. Mm. But I just thought, like any great joke, because it was, you know, different terminology these days, but it was a Me Too moment for women where they were saying, look, you guys can have your Playboys and your, your penthouses and you can ogle over women's bodies. Well, the times are changing. We can now ogle over men's bodies because we're in charge of our own bodies now because yeah. that was the message at Cleo. But I thought, like, you know, it was always done with a beautifully – Cheeky sense of humour that yeah. centrefold, and it never kind of felt exploitative in the way that female centrefolds might. Yeah, but I just thought after thirteen years, you know, it's time. But the circulation faltered in that first year, and so Did you I get really, some heat for that. Then, yeah, there was. I felt that Kerry was was watching. Trevor knew to sort of, I think, probably keep Kerry at a distance and, and just say let her find her feet. Hmm. And so I felt supported even though I felt that hot breath down the back of the neck. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. it was it was just implied. But I was there for 10 years and I'm proud to say this incredible team that, that we became at Cleo drove that magazine to be the number one selling women's lifestyle magazine per capita in the world. And this, you know, it wasn't, because <laughs> every other magazine we were up against, Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, Cosmo, Elle. All of those magazines were born in boardrooms and in London and New York. Clio was a wholly owned Aussie product and yet we were the little battler that got to number one. And I loved that. I, you know, I'm a proud Australian. and So I, you should. Yeah. So it's... Dolly and Cleo were uniquely Australian, Australian products. And both of them, by the time I finished at Cleo after 10 years, both of them had international editions. So I love the fact that, you know, our titles had pushed back the other way, which was great. I love it.
0: So for your situation there, everything's going so well, Telly. Right, That becomes Mm. a huge part of your life and still Mm. is a huge part of your life. So how is that transition? We've heard the transition from Dolly. So what's the transition now from Cleo?
1: Well, blow me down. If Pete and I don't, by this stage, have one healthy child on the ground and I was pregnant with our second, I went on maternity leave. But I also said to my boss, you know what, I've been doing this for 10 years. I really want to take time out to be a mum. Because I've worked so hard all of my adult life, and you
0: didn't get your trip to—I never so, got to my Europe. trip to Europe. You never got um, that. Although
1: Kerry Packard did send me to New York on my first trip overseas, after I'd been there about eighteen months, he was looking to buy into the American market. And Trevor turned up in my office one day and said, "What are you doing on Saturday?" And this was like a Thursday, and I said. I don't know. I said, why? And he said, Kerry wants to fly you to New York to work with Gloria Steinem. He's thinking of buying her magazine so I can get into the American market. So two days later, I was flying to New York to advise Gloria Steinem, the greatest feminist (laughs) of the 20th century and now the 21st, so I went over there to work with her, and they. You put
0: fly down the back on those occasions, or you I bit, didn't. Are you going in I, turning left?
1: I got <laughs> to turn left, and they put me up in the Plaza Hotel. You know, one of my favourite movies, one of my favourite rom-coms, is *Barefoot in the Park*. Jane Fonda and Robert Redford, and. I was staying in the Plaza Hotel. So let me Pinch tell me. you, that little girl who was meant to go backpacking in Europe, very calmly, as I was shown to room 707 in the Plaza Hotel, I walked in, I was shown how to work the TV, this is the bathroom, <laughs> there's the menu if you want to order room service. Is there anything else, Ms Wilkinson? No, that's fine. Thank you very much. <laughs> and I counted to 10. After he'd closed the door, and I got up on that bed and I jumped on it and I screamed my lungs out.
0: <laughs> you beauty. What a I
1: moment. just thought if you wait sometimes, other things can happen. They sure can. Just quickly interrupting the episode to say a very big thank you to the sponsor of this podcast, and that is Shure and Partners Financial Services. Shure and Partners are an Australian investment and wealth management firm who manage over twenty-eight
0: billion dollars of assets under advice. With seven offices across Australia, Shure and Partners act for and on behalf of individuals, institutions, corporates, and charities.
1: For more info, you can check out their website at shureandpartners.com.au. That's S-H-A-W for sure. Shure and Partners Financial Services, your partners in building and preserving wealth. Now let's get back into the episode.
0: Yeah. And you made some good calls all the way through and people keeping backing you, which is what I love it. That's the theme that comes through your book and it also comes through this chat is that you never thought you were quite good enough. Mm. You gave it an absolute go. You were good enough. And then you've brought people along on this journey with you. Yeah. So how hard was it to move away and go to telly?
1: Well, so so I said to my bosses, look, I want to take 12 months off and I just don't feel it's fair for somebody else to come in and sort of have a holding pattern until I get back from maternity leave. So I'm going to leave Cleo. I don't know if you'll have a job for me in 12 months time. And if you don't, that's fine. Because Pete and I, you know, we want to have a couple more kids and- We'll just – we'll see how that goes. But I'm very happy to hand all of this over to the lap of the gods at the moment. Okay. And if you still think, you know, you you want me in 12 months' time, great. And if you don't, I will accept that as well.
0: Is, but is that absolutely the truth? Because That is
1: – God's honour – truth. Because for
0: me, it's like, of course they're going to – like in 12 months' time, if you're available, they're going to hope to get you because you're going to have other options. Did well, you not feel that?
1: Well, Kerry had asked me on a couple of occasions to edit the weekly – And I I just didn't feel I was grown up enough. (laughs) It's just like- Getting back to
0: meatloaf again. Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) That's where the adults go. And I don't know that I'm that yet. (laughs) So I thought, you know, maybe he'll offer that to me down the track. But, you know, people have jobs. It's just not like, okay, well, Lisa's back. We'll get rid of that person. And I also didn't want to be that person. And as it turned out, six months into my maternity leave, I got a call from a guy by the name of Brian Walsh who I'd known as the 2SM publicity director back in the, (laughs) you know, the good old days of 2SM and the Hit Network, as it was known then, he said to me, Lisa, we've just started up Foxtel and I want to bring back a show called Beauty and the Beast. And I'm wondering if you know it. And I said, oh, yeah, my mum used to watch it because it had been on and off Australian TV for almost 40 years. And... I said to him, you know, I really like that show because it's got a real diversity of women on there, you know, who all sorts of ages, all sorts of backgrounds and, you know, they're wise old heads. And he said, yeah, I'd like you to be one of our regular panellists. And I thought, it's funny, I've done lots of interviews over the years but I'd never looked straight down the barrel of a camera, which is a big black hole. It is nothing more than that. And you've got to imagine that you're talking to a person. There's a skill I don't have. It was only a six-week series. And he said, would you be game enough to give it a go? And I just thought, what's the worst that can happen? I can be terrible at it. That's okay. (laughs) I know I can edit magazines, so I've got my skill. I'm also a very good receptionist. (laughs) I can still do my shorthanded typing. So I've got some runs on the board that I can always go back and rely on. (laughs) I actually thought I would be terrible because I had no clue and I was also sitting at a desk with absolute veterans like Jeannie Little and Ida Butros. Yeah. And the guy who was the beast, you know, Brian had said to me when I said to him, because like John Laws, Darren Hinch, Eric Bohm, Stuart Wagstaff, you know, male icons of Australian television had sat in that chair and I said, So so who's the beast? And he said to me, oh, do you ever listen to 2UE? And I said, well, not if I can help it. Um, I'm more an FM girl, Brian. And he said, oh, there's a guy called Stan Zamanik. And I said, oh, no, I don't, don't know him. And he said, he's on late at night. And I said, oh, not that right-wing shock jock. And he said, yeah, yeah, so that's, that's him. That's him. <laughs> that's the one. Anyway, I turned up on the first day and... Stan and I, it turned out, were sharing a dressing room. So, you know, he really? would go in and get changed and then come out and then I would go in and get changed. And we got talking and, and he was actually a really lovely man. And I worked out, oh, I see, that's the, that's the bluster that happens when the microphone goes on. You become mm. this character. So on the very first day, Brian came down on the floor. There's, you know, Jeannie, Maureen, Ida Butros, veterans, and Brian said, How's everyone feeling? <laughs> and Ita said, Brian, it's a privilege to be sitting here. Thank you so much for, you know, the elegant, yeah, graceful, beautiful. measured Ita." And then Brian looked over at Stan and I, who had not said a word, looked like a couple of rabbits caught in headlights, and he said, what the hell's wrong with you two? And Stan and I just looked at each other and basically said at the same time, we've never done this before. <laughs> And he looked at at us both and sort of stepped back half a pace and he said, oh, for Christ's sake, get over yourself. It's only television. <laughs> and it was the best advice yeah. for someone who ended up making the second part of her career about television because TV is a really weird beast. Cameras are very strange things. <laughs> it says nothing about you as a human being, whether you're good on TV or not, It just means that you can fake really well that you're talking to a person in that big black hole, which kind of doesn't say great things about you if you stop and think about it for too long. (laughs) But it just meant that I was relaxed from that very first day. And also Stan was good at needling and I quite enjoyed the banter with him and I I felt very honoured to be in the presence of of women who could teach me a lot Mm. about being in a TV studio It was just a great introduction because, you know, Brian said to me, you know, the second thing he said after that, he said, oh, for Christ's sake, no one's watching. It's just like, it's only Foxtel. So it's not like anyone's going to see this. So there were just sort of a couple of comfort pillows that were placed around me in, in those early days. And the series kept getting renewed. And then Channel 10 bought it. So I had this really soft introduction to being on TV. And... I went back and did a bit of magazine consultant, consultancy and I was getting offers internationally to work on magazines overseas. So I had this really lovely mix of things that I was doing. I was doing a bit of radio. So I just never went back to full-time editing mm. because I preferred just having a mix of things that I was doing. And then in 2003, I got a call from a guy called Adam Boland, who was this wunderkind of breakfast television who had shaken the whole market up and he was doing this absolutely raw version of what breakfast television could be. And he said to me, I want you to come on as a social commentator. And I said, sure, Adam, what's a social commentator? (laughs) I think he invented that phrase is that somebody who, you know, can't get enough gigs to have an actual full-time job? And he said, no, no, I just want you to come on and and talk about the news of the day. And he said, but I want you to come on with your husband. And I said to him, nah, nah, I don't need to have domestics on national television. But as it happened that day, Steve Price was at our house for lunch. Mm. He'd just taken over the breakfast slot at 2UE, And Pete was working at TUE and he invited him over for lunch. And Steve and I used to have, you know, quite good banter with each other, didn't agree on some things, agreed on others. And I said, but I tell you what, Steve Price is sitting at our place having lunch right now. I think I could do it with Steve really well. And so I just started doing that. And then Adam asked me, would you mind filling in? Uh, for Mel when she's on holidays and started doing that. And then they decided they wanted to do a weekend version of the show and I got to host that. And by 2007, we'd all been watching very closely the sort of unfolding drama that was happening over at the Today Show because Sunrise had been so brilliantly run Mm. and the audiences had connected with it and Today Show was in a bit of trouble And I think there were five women in succession that had sat next to Carl. And I got a phone call out of the blue saying, would you be interested? And through Adam and through working with Mel Doyle in particular, I got this great love of breakfast television and you know it's an extraordinary thing to be invited into people's homes mm. when they wake up when we are all at our most raw our most unshowered <laughs> unshaven untoothbrushed yeah. Uh, yeah it's it's really a time of day when It's a very special thing to invite anybody into that environment because people don't invite anyone at breakfast time because we're looking for missing socks, there's a missing library book, someone (laughs) hasn't made the school lunches, you're yelling. It's the mechanics of being a family. So if you are a warm presence in people's lives, wow, you get to tell them what's been going on while they've been asleep. Mm. And you get to interview prime ministers. and, And I just thought, I'm gonna get offered this once in my life. Here I go again. <laughs> another, another one keeps yeah. happening. Yeah, and I thought, but I was leaving the number one rating far and away the number one rating breakfast show, and I knew a lot of people would think I was crazy, but I also thought Mel Doyle's got a job for life. She's not going anywhere, and nor should she. Look at the success of the Melancholy brand. Yeah, like that was one word, Melancholy. Yeah. There's Natalie Barr as the long-time newsreader. If Mel decides that she wants to move on, Nat is the obvious choice. If I'm really lucky, I'm third in line here. And, you know, I wasn't 25. I was in my 40s. And I thought I can sit around here hoping and, you know, praying, but not even hoping and praying because it's a huge thing to take on that hosting role. Of course. Like I'd seen it up close but I hadn't sat in the chair as, you know, you're it. Yeah. But I just thought, oh, I'm, it probably won't work. And hey, it's only television. And if, you know, I've got a husband that loves me, I've got a family that are healthy and well, and I'm just going to give this a shot. And I'd been introduced to Carl at the Logies by Larry Emder.
0: There's a couple of loose cannons right there, Larry and Carl.
1: Talk to me, especially at the bar at (laughs) the Logies. And it had been a very short space of time between me being quietly offered the job and the Logies. And if there's one place you do not want to be on the day the story breaks, unbeknownst to you, that you've just been offered, you know, the most talked about role on Australian television, that of sitting next to Carl Stefanovic at the Today Show – you don't want that day to be the Logies. That was the day that it broke, and I was there as a guest of Channel Seven on the Sunrise table. Oh, so that was the day it on broke the, on the
0: competition. Oh my oh, god, dear. it
1: was just so uncomfortable. <laughs> and as you know, at the Logies, when the ad break happens, that's your time to run out to the loo, and you've got to get back before the ad break finishes; otherwise, you get locked out. Well, I got locked out, and I looked over towards the bar, and there was a group of people. And I saw the lovely Larry Emder and I thought, there's a friendly face. Because I, I just, the whole night, I'd been keeping my head Course. down. Don't look at me. Don't anyone look at me. Yeah. I'm not telling you if I've been off of the Today Show. So I walked over towards Larry and he said, well, aren't you the most talked about girl in the room tonight? And I said, <laughs> oh, Larry, don't. I don't want to talk about it. And he said, that's okay. I think you'll want to talk to this guy. And he slapped the guy on the back. He turned around. It was Carl. And anyway, I missed a couple of blue breaks because we just started (laughs) chatting. And I'd I'd seen him, and I just thought he was a bit unformed, but I just thought there's something there that's really charming. And I also knew he was a very good journo. Mm. He was great on the ground. Whenever I saw him go out to stories, he could do it up there with the very best. And I didn't have that training at that point. And I just thought, there's someone I can learn from again. So I just took a leap of faith and thought, yeah, I'm going to give it a go.
0: And the rest is history in terms of a nice little chunk there. Yeah. Let me stop you for a moment because people listening to the podcast series would have already heard from Carl. And he's a friend of mine and someone that I enjoy his company. He speaks about you so fondly in the podcast where he was like trying to work out whether or not he could do the job himself. And he said, as soon as Lisa came around, she gave me permission to be myself, and the connection was just pretty much straight away. He went, oh, at least I've got someone sensible next to me that can do all that (laughs) stuff, and I can sort of be myself. And he said, allowing me to be myself ended up making me better to do the sensible stuff as well, and that's why he loved that relationship between you two so much.
1: That's lovely to hear. And I do feel that we both gave ourselves permission to be ourselves because we just liked each other straight away. And over the years, we always knew at the very heart of it, we liked each other, we could challenge each other, we didn't agree on everything politically, and we would have great discussions about, you know, where things are up to in politics. And we would also, you know, when we were doing solo interviews, we would, you know, if one of us thought of a question while the other one was doing an interview – you'd quickly quickly write something down. So that we so great all,
0: teamwork and chemistry yeah, there. Yeah,
1: we always supported each other. But we could make each other laugh as well, but we could also surprise each other. And a role like that when, you know, just as everyone at home watching is at their most raw, when you're getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning and you've got to hit the ground running, there are particular challenges to doing those hours. I mean, like every shift worker listening to this, mm. just tiredness alone. And, you know, we would often swap stories at the desk about some grumpy mood that you were in last night and you had a fight with your partner. And, you know, it was just part of sharing the experience of doing those hours and the intensity of the microscope that you are under doing breakfast TV, because it's like no other slot on television, the scrutiny that you are under. So you do feel like you're part of a, a, a very small team of people going through the same experience. And like any marriage, because it is, um, you know, that was my work marriage, you want to keep feeling like you can keep pulling back the layers of an onion. Mm. And really, right up until my very last day with Carl, we could still, you know, reach in and do great stuff. Mm. We never lost that.
0: How long did it take you to go from where today's show was to the juggernaut it became? And can you remember the first time you became number one after taking the job on? Because you were part of the Seven family. Yeah. And all of a sudden, as soon as you went across to Nine, there's someone at Seven going, ah, we've missed an opportunity there. We don't want to move Mel on because she's awesome. Nat's awesome too, but Lisa's going to make that show so much better. So how long did it take?
1: We really started building from that very first year and we could feel it. And so I joined in May of two thousand and seven, and by the following year, it was Good Friday, which is always a bit of a, a tricky one to really declare. Hey, we won the Good Friday yeah. ratings because a lot of people are away on holidays, and sure. so the numbers aren't. If it works your way. Typical. You're going
0: to shout and scream. But
1: <laughs> hey, as Carl called me on the on the Saturday morning after the Good Friday, and he was over the moon. He said, we won. We finally won. So we'd won the ratings on one day. And he said to me, (laughs) Dal, they can never take away from us that on one occasion, (laughs) we won the Breakfast TV Wars. And then we started winning a bit more and a bit more and a bit more. And it just kept building. And we had a brilliant executive producer, called Tom Malone who now runs all of Nine's radio network who's remained a very dear friend of mine and he's one of the cleverest bosses I've ever worked under. I learnt so much from him and he was great at rallying the team and Carl listened to him, which was always a bonus. <laughs> you needed an executive producer that Carl listened to. I was always the good girl, middle child syndrome, yeah. yet again rearing its ugly head. <laughs> but just every year it just kept growing and growing. More of that charisma that Carl had got a chance to, to rear its very entertaining head. Yeah. So in, I think it was 2010, there was the infamous morning after the Logies episode. Yeah. And the funny thing about that is when we went to air that morning, I thought I was going to have to host the show on my own. Because no one had seen Carl. And when he turned up, he was like everyone was scrambling. So the music was starting to play for the opening credits of the show. Mark Ferguson was doing the news out of Sydney and I was there on my own and – We were having issues with Mark. He couldn't hear me. Carl had turned up. I sort of breathed out for a moment but didn't get a chance to talk to him because people were hovering with mics and all of the stuff that you have to wear in order to be able to talk to the control room and hear what they're saying to you and down the line. And then he sat down and he just put his hand on mine as if to say, I'm here.
0: I gotcha. Yeah. yeah.
1: And (laughs) the funny thing over time is you can always, without even looking at Carl, each of us could tell who's going to speak now. We could just feel each other Mm. in our peripheral vision. And I could feel that he was breathing in. I thought, oh, he's going to pick up and say good morning. But that wasn't exactly what he said. (laughs) What I heard in my peripheral vision, if you can mix up the senses there... Well, good well, morning to you. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. My first thought was, is he still on his way up the mountain or are we coming down the other side now or are we sitting at the summit? Yeah. I had no clue. And it was only through him, sadly, continuing to try to talk that I could get a reading on where he was. And I think quite literally at that point, We were just a couple of metres from the summit, (laughs) and then for the rest of the three and a half hours, we were coming down the other side. Um, And I have to say, just the mere fact that he said to me 73 times that morning how beautiful I was is not proof in and of itself that he was drunk. (laughs) I mean, it goes a long way. Maybe the, maybe the first
0: couple were, and then after that, it was just what he wanted to say every morning and didn't have the confidence, maybe.
1: He was very funny that morning.
0: We could do a whole podcast just on, maybe not that morning, but certainly all the fun that you guys have had. And a lot of the big stories that you broke as well together. Mm. And, and like you said, after doing 11 years of Brecky Radio with... Matty Johns and MG, you know, there were moments there when Matty was asleep through songs or we'd play an extra song to give him an extra few minutes to gear up. And that's what stopped him doing Brekkie Radio in the end for Matty Johns, who was so tired. You know, he loved doing it, but if he could do it from 7.30 till (laughs) 9, it would be perfect.
1: (laughs) Well, we always joke that we're actually a nighttime show that's (laughs) on at breakfast. Yeah. And we, we often wondered, should we do a nighttime show instead when we're sick of all this? So... Everything's
0: going well, beautifully there at Channel 9. And I think it's well documented. I think most people who know you would understand that you left Channel 9 and there was some drama around that. Do you talk to that now? Can you talk to that now? Why something so successful you decided to walk away from?
1: One of the reasons that I wrote the book is that a narrative built up around my reasons for leaving Channel 9 and joining the project That wasn't true. And there was a lot of clickbait around at the time. And I could have got down in the mud and tried to set the record straight, but you can lose a lot of skin doing that. And you start to play into a tit for tat game. And I didn't want to do any of that. I just thought I've moved on. I wish everyone at the Today Show all the very best. I became the longest-serving Today Show female co-host in its history and I wear that with such pride because every single day I turned up at that show was a privilege and so few people get that opportunity and it was never lost on me every day, the, the opportunities that you get in that role and you get to meet so many Australians And you get to interview Prime Ministers and and you're there when, you know, breaking news happens, like the morning Michael Jackson died, um, the day Julia Gillard became our first Prime Minister, Carl and I hosted the wedding of William and Kate. Like Mm. it just, it blew my mind that I was in this position. But the project came along at around about the same time as I was talking to Channel 9 about, you know, my, my contract. And... Basically, the the decision was made for me. One of the reasons, of the many reasons I wrote my book, is I just thought I want to set the record straight Mm. because it's not a simple – you can't reduce down to a simple headline, a simple cheap headline, which most of them were, why I left and what happened. And I wanted to make it clear in the book how grateful I was for the relationship that Carl and I had – because it was a, gr- we were a great team. We knew we were a great team because we were enjoying it. But just towards the end, things were happening that just weren't making it an ideal place for me. Mm. And so, going to the project, it felt like the right move to make. And it's that thing of the roller coaster of my life of, of being in the media, and I just thought. I want to learn something new. I want to start doing more long form journalism. And had I not made that move, I would never have got the phone call from Brittany Higgins. You know, in many ways, that story has been the greatest privilege of my journalistic career to have a young woman like that in such a vulnerable situation trust me so completely with her story. Mm. And since the story went to air, you know, the, the way things have unfolded, I've, I've seen government up close and it's not attractive at all. Yeah. Uh, you know, all the backgrounding that, that went on. I always think that things happen for a reason. And I can genuinely say I walk away from the time that I had with Carl with nothing but love in my heart and great affection for him and for having been a part of a success story.
0: Well, he certainly feels the same way. There's no, there's no doubt about that. From my point of view, I just sort of miss you. I suppose you know, like Aww. I know you're on the project in Handle Ten, but just in my life, it's just a different time of day. You know, mm. I'm an early to Betty and and all that sort of jazz. So that's yeah. not my watching stuff. But let me get to the end.
1: I'm so I am a chatterbox. No, but I
0: love you being a chatterbox, which is great, and all our <laughs> listeners would love that. That was
1: where I wrote the book. I just thought I've had too many great things happen in my life that. I've almost lived it in an out of body experience. I just think these things keep happening to me and I've I've got to tell people about them because it's a it's I've lived a very strange Awesome. Incredible life.
0: Yeah. The other thing, I think at some stage you're going to have to start believing that you're quite good at whatever you <laughs> whatever you do and the people that put you in these positions, they're not idiots. You know what I mean? So at some stage, if you could lock that in.
1: Okay. Um, I'm coming back to you for career advice and yeah, future, just, Gus. If, if
0: someone comes up and says, I think you should do something, just do it. Yeah. The fast five questions, which end our podcast. Mm-hmm. Have you got a favourite quote? Have you got something that you live your life
1: by? In the book, because I collect quotes, I just, I love other people's beautiful use of the English language and wisdom. Yeah. And so at the start of every chapter, I've put, I, th- I think there's 38 chapters in the book or did I get into the 40s? Maybe I got into the 40s. <laughs> yeah, I did get into, I think I got to 45 chapters. And at the start of every chapter, I've put one of my 45 most favorite, but there's one that I think probably sums up so much of my life and it's the way I've lived it and that is listen to your gut instincts because they are your guardian angels.
0: Oh, I love that. That's great. Favourite holiday destination?
1: Probably anywhere in Queensland. Really? I just I love Queensland.
0: Carl said the same. Carl said the same thing. Yeah, I thought you were going to say New York or you're going to say the Maldives or the Amalfi Coast or something.
1: Like I love all of those destinations. I love going to New York to see Hugh and Deb. Yeah, but they're all kind of a bit racy for me. If I want to breathe out, and just want to be, I always find because Pete and I had our honeymoon in Noosa, and I probably go back to Noosa find myself there at least once a year. And I just I love walking through that national park. Mm. I love going for a swim at at the beach there, and just off Hastings Street. I love the restaurant strip, and you know it just to me that just that's like Christmas. That was the first family holiday I ever went on. Was fifteen, and we put the car on the back of the train at central station really it came out at mawellam bar you got a free car wash we went in the in dad's blue kingswood <laughs> and then we drove up the queensland coast and we stopped at noosa and i remember dad driving down hastings street and there were still vacant blocks of land in Hastings Street at that time. I would have time.
0: To a couple of those. And
1: down the end was the Caravan Park and there were women walking around in string tan through bikinis like it was a scene out of Woodstock. <laughs> this was the early 70s. And I just remember thinking, this is Nirvana, and yeah. I, I've never lost that.
0: Well, Carl said exactly the same thing, said Noosa. Yeah. Favourite uh, book, except you can't say your own. Uh, no. <laughs>
1: Hands down, Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird.
0: Oh, yeah. So many people have...
1: Scout, my hero. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Favourite movie?
1: Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Catherine Hepburn, Spencer oh. Tracy, um, Sydney Poitier. The lessons that I learnt as a little girl growing up in Campbelltown and understanding the injustice of racial vilification and but also how families should work and... Oh, just that speech that Spencer Tracy, I'm going to get tears. Spencer Tracy delivers at the end.
0: Take a <laughs> Can you quote it?
1: I wish I could. Okay. I wish I could do it justice. But it's about love. And it doesn't matter where you find it. But it's about finding it. Isn't that funny? <laughs> Come straight back.
0: That's good. Last question, and this might get you emotional as well. Very lucky to have a sponsor like Shaw and Partners, Earl and Au are just both very beautiful people. So every guest gets $10,000 to give to their favourite charity. So who would you like to give it to? And if you can give our listeners a bit of an understanding where $10,000 what that will do for the charity or what they will do with the money.
1: Well, I hope I don't lose my ambassadorships with a number of charities that I'm it's ha- involved with. It's, it's Fred hard Hollows to pick. Foundation, National Breast Cancer, Breast Cancer Trials, Butterfly Foundation, Sydney Children's Hospital. I love all of them equally. <laughs> it's a bit like loving children. Yeah. But on that note of children, it's not a charity that I'm specifically involved with, but I think right now after 2 years of the pandemic and a very complicated world that our children are growing up in i would love to give the money to kids helpline i think that they are such an incredible service at the at the very front line when kids often don't feel like they've got anyone in their life that they can trust that they can turn to in a real moment of need yeah. and without proper funding those calls can go unanswered and they don't get anywhere near the funding that they need or deserve, or that our kids deserve. Mm. And I would love the money to to go to Kids Helpline. They're an extraordinary organisation.
0: No, they certainly are. I, I know them well, and we'll make sure that ten thousand goes to them and let them know that that's what you wanted. Thank so, you so much. It's a pleasure. And like I said, we could have talked, I think, for a long longer than we have. But thanks so much, Lise. I know you're very busy. I know Thank you've got you a lot us. on. I think the book for me, gave me a bit of an insight into someone that, like I said, off the top, that is much loved and respected in this country. And uh, so go out there and and buy a copy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Gus. So lovely to see you. Good on you,
0: Lisa. Well, that was Lisa Wilkinson. What I loved about that chat is that she never quite felt confident enough to take on the next opportunity. I was wondering why, and I asked her in there, why she kept on getting all these opportunities. She never thought she was right for it. Well, she's an amazing lady and I hope you enjoyed it. Coming up next on Not an Overnight Success is Ian Roberts. Ian Roberts was one of the toughest guys in footy. He's currently also known for being the only openly gay professional rugby league player in Australia. Ian has lived a very interesting and eye-opening life. He's had some incredible highs, like representing his country and being the voice for LGBTIQ people and he's faced some extreme challenges in his time as well like not being accepted by his own family, the discrimination he faced for decades and the brain injuries he has suffered as a result of his career. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you share it with someone who you think might get something out of it. You can also subscribe to this podcast on whichever platform you're listening to right now so that our episodes update as they're released. A big thank you to Shaw and Partners Financial Services who have generously supported this podcast and also donated $10,000 to the charity of choice of each of our guests to thank them for their time. Shaw and Partners are an Australian investment and wealth management firm who manage over $28 billion of assets under advice. With seven offices around Australia, Shaw and Partners act for and on behalf of individuals, institutions, corporates, and charities. For more info, you can check out their website at shawandpartners.com.au. That's S H A W for Shaw. Shaw and Partners financial services. Your partners in building and preserving wealth.